Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that there's a complete consensus amongst New Testament scholars that the kingdom of God was indeed the central theme in the entire message of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all picture Jesus as a traveling preacher from Galilee, and his constant activity involved the announcing of the good news or gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Matthew 4.23, and Luke 4.43. Leading scholars tell us that the dominant concept of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. We're convinced from our own study over a long period of time that you can personally confirm that simple fact for yourself by taking a Bible, any translation will do, and merely reading the opening accounts of the ministry of Jesus and following the ministry of Jesus carefully through the approximately three and a half years of his ministry, and we're convinced that you'll be overwhelmed by the massive emphasis placed in our biblical documents on the kingdom as the center of everything that Jesus preached. Now, having established that fact, we're rather amazed to find that leading preachers today say that they have not been preaching the kingdom of God. Our suggestion is that that gap, that gulf, even that chasm between the preaching of Jesus about the kingdom and modern versions of the faith demand an urgent investigation. There seems to be an extraordinary difference between what Jesus preached and what we now offer as the Christian faith. Examine, for example, tracts offering salvation. It's highly doubtful that in any tract that you may find in a bookstore or elsewhere that there will be a clear exposition of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus always offered the kingdom of God for repentance and belief on the part of his audiences. It's customary today, for instance, to say that we have to believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that he died for our sins and that he rose again, and that that is the heart of the gospel. But of course, we're not denying for a moment that the death and resurrection are significant parts of the gospel, but the question is, is that the gospel as Jesus originally preached it? Is that the whole of the gospel? And the answer plainly seems to be no, because Jesus preached the kingdom of God long before he mentioned a word about his death and resurrection. In fact, the apostles preached the gospel alongside Jesus in the absence of any understanding that there was going to be such a thing as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can check that in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, where Jesus announced, I think, for the fourth time, to the disciples, that they were then about to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to die, that three days later he was going to be raised from the dead, and the account tells us that the disciples did not comprehend these things, and yet they had been preaching the gospel, and they had been offering salvation to people under the term the gospel of the kingdom. And so the question presents itself like this, was the form of the gospel, the content of the gospel, radically altered when Jesus died? And the answer is plainly not. If we look the other side of the cross, beyond the cross now, after Jesus has indeed died and risen from the grave, 
what do we find? Do we find a new gospel consisting only of the death and resurrection of Jesus without the kingdom message? Well, certainly not. In Acts 1, verse 3, the risen Christ presents himself alive to his followers and continues for a six-week seminar for 40 days to address them on the very same topic, namely the kingdom of God. You'll find that in Acts 1, 3. And now, if you would, follow the story with careful attention. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus announced that they were going to receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a very few days' time. Now, in response to that knowledge of the coming Spirit, the great immersion in Spirit which occurred at Pentecost a few days later, the disciples had an important question to ask. It was, if you like, their famous last question to Jesus. It was the final question they ever asked him before he ascended to be with the Father and to sit at the right hand of the Father pending his future coming. Note carefully the question asked by the disciples after they had just received the information about the Holy Spirit coming in a few days' time. They asked Jesus this question, Has the time now arrived for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, a great deal of commentary has been critical of the disciples' question here. Calvin says that there are more errors in that question than there are words. Now, a great deal turns on our understanding of the Scriptures at this point. Was that, in fact, an erroneous question? Was that an ignorant question? Is it in any way reasonable to say that the disciples did not know what the kingdom of God was? Surely, if they had been preaching the kingdom and had been sent out to preach the kingdom under the authority of Jesus himself, surely, if they had understood the parables as Jesus had ascertained that they had, he asked them, you remember frequently, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes, in regard to the parables. Surely, if Jesus had personally instructed the apostles and monitored their progress in the gospel for three and a half years, it is most unreasonable to suggest that they still did not know what the kingdom of God was. And yet, traditional Christianity has taken a fatal turn at this point. Along with Calvin, many commentators have failed to see that the restoration of the kingdom to Israel was a matter of correct understanding, not of an ignorant Jewish so-called carnal understanding. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel was the theme of all the Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself had promised them that in the new age they would sit on thrones to administer the twelve tribes. Of course then they believed in the future restoration of the kingdom. But the point I would like to underline in Acts chapter 1 is simply this. The coming of the Spirit was promised to be in a few days' time. In answer to the question of the disciples as to when the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel, Jesus' answer is very clear. It was not for them to know when that restoration of the kingdom to Israel was going to take place. I hasten to point out that it was not a question of whether the kingdom of God would ever be restored to Israel. It was simply a question of when that was going to happen. It is dangerous, therefore, to add our own opinions to the text at this point. We may simply be laboring 
under the blinding effects of a prejudice if we assume, as Calvin did, that the disciples had no understanding of the nature of the kingdom. That really is preposterous in view of the fact that they had been personally instructed under the private tutelage of the Messiah himself and that they had indeed been authoritative and accredited preachers of the gospel of the kingdom along with Jesus. I suggest, therefore, that we take on board the simple fact that the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is an event of the future, according to Jesus. The Spirit, however, was to come in a few days' time. From this I conclude with complete certainty that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is not the same as the coming of the kingdom of God. We may put it this way, that the inauguration of the kingdom of God did not occur at the ascension of Jesus, and therefore the equation of the kingdom with the church is fundamentally flawed. It's simply not true to the outline given us plainly in the first chapter of Acts. The coming of the Spirit is one thing. The Spirit points to the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom itself. It's the down payment and guarantee of the future kingdom, but it's not the kingdom itself. The kingdom awaits a time unknown, according to Jesus, and it will involve the restoration of the kingship and the kingdom to Israel, the nation. It involves, of course, the faithful Christians of all the ages who themselves will be co-regents and co-rulers with Jesus in that coming kingdom. Don't you know, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, that the saints are going to administer the world, and if the world is to come under your jurisdiction, how come you cannot sort out your own legal affairs in the church? For Paul, the prospect of the church being the rulers of the world tomorrow, the rulers of the future kingdom, was a reality which should drive the ethical behavior of the Christians in the present. If we suffer with him, Paul said it in another place in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, we shall reign as kings with him. And the book of Revelation is filled with promises of the objective of Christianity being rulership of the world in the future with Jesus. It's interesting and most instructive to note that all the co-rulership verses in the Bible, and there are many in the New Testament, all are given us in the future tense. No verse says that we are now ruling with Christ. They all say that we shall rule with Christ, and they are therefore looking forward to the time when Christ returns to establish the kingdom at his second coming. Our inheritance is said to be future in the New Testament. We are heirs of the kingdom now, but we've not inherited the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul blocked any idea that we have already inherited the kingdom of God. In that verse he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's to say, human beings, as they are presently constituted in our mortal, frail form, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's an absolute impossibility. Paul went on to point out that we must be transformed by the great resurrection event destined to happen at the last trumpet, the great resurrection trumpet which will sound on the occasion of the arrival of Jesus in power and glory, empowered as he will be at that time to inaugurate the kingdom of God on this earth. And so Christians then must be persecuted if necessary in the present, must suffer if necessary in the present. That's why in Acts 14 verse 22 Paul said, it is through much tribulation that we are destined to enter the kingdom of God. 
entrance into the kingdom of God, both in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of Paul, is predicated on that future event by which we will be transformed into immortal beings in order to serve as kings with Jesus in the future kingdom. The scheme of the New Testament is exceedingly simple. It's likened to a race. You begin the race now at the point of conversion, but the Christian life consists in persisting through trial and tribulation until we reach the goal. We must persevere until the end. The idea that you won the race when the starting gun goes off falsifies the New Testament scheme. Passage after passage insist that there are conditions for a successful accomplishment of the Christian venture. The exhortations and encouragements given us on page after page of the New Testament are designed to keep us steady on the course that leads to the great destination, namely the resurrection into the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. We are urged not to fall away from the faith, not to give up the faith. We are instructed constantly that only if we remain faithful to the end will we successfully accomplish the goal for which we've been invited in the first place, namely to participate in the future kingdom as servant rulers and kings with Jesus. That's the prospect laid before us in the New Testament on page after page. But that great messianic hope is collapsed and dissolved if we start talking about souls disembodied, escaping the body and disappearing to heaven at the moment of death. We invite you to call us for literature on these important topics and join us again as we continue our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel of the kingdom of God.